Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 550 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menus. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there is a PayPal button on every page of the website. My guest today is Lars Muhl. Welcome, Lars. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Lars is over in Denmark. And I'll just uh, give you a few little bullet points about him, and then we'll elaborate on these points as we get into our conversation Since a very young age, Lars has been quite psychic and sensitive. In his teen years, he began studying the spiritual traditions of the world. He became a professional singer-songwriter and did that for 50 years. was quite, I think, well-known in in Europe and uh, and Israel. Also, his band toured there as a musician. Then in 1995, for three years, he was bedridden with an unexplainable illness. We'll talk about that. At the end of those three years, he was healed in in the space of about five minutes by a seer named Kale de Monsegur. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. And Lars became his apprentice for seven years. Lars is the best-selling author of the trilogy, The O Manuscript, which is translated into many languages. And his latest book is The God Formula, which I read just this past week. So, here we go, Lars. And uh, thank you all for tuning in to watch this interview, this conversation. I heard you tell the story several times of your sister having died when she was six and you were 10. Was that sort of the beginning of your psychic experiences and sensitivity, or were you that way even at a younger age? Even before I had some experiences, but it was when my sister died that uh, it really broke through, you know, and yeah, so her death meant a whole new direction of my life. What's your understanding now of why a a trauma like that could have caused you to become significantly more sensitive and psychic? How could it awaken those kinds of abilities in a person? Many years later, when I met uh, the seer, Kalle de Montségur, my teacher, he explained to me that this is something that happens to everybody, but more profoundly maybe for kids who are exposed to traumas like this, or if they lose their parents or are in an accident or whatever. But all people are experiencing this at the moment when we become, uh, what do you call it, when we come into puberty. Then the kundalini power is starting to move, you know. It's like something is released. It's not a, a raising of the kundalini, but it's some movements that for most people are only lasting maybe one day or uh, within a few days and then it's gone. But everybody has within those days a kind of connection to the other side, so to speak. But only very few are attentive towards it. But on the other hand, what happened to me was that I kept kind of hanging in there, you know. There was no way that I could get out of it. And for every day, it just became more and more profound in a way that was really traumatic to me. And it meant that I was able to 
feel other people's pains and the grown-ups, I could feel that they they thought one thing, said another, and did a complete different thing, you know. And and that was really the scary part for me that I couldn't. I felt that I could not trust the adults, you know, at that time. Of course, they were only just doing what every adult is doing, what we all do. But when you are a kid, you know, even if you don't have this kind of thing that I went through, you are much more sensitive towards things couple of interesting points in there. So from what I gather from what you're saying, it's like a trauma, a sudden shock, like with your sister's dying, kind of cracked you open and you couldn't close down again. You were just open and you had, you know, you just were sensitive and that's all there was to it. And another thing I gathered is that you said that everybody undergoes some degree of this when they attain puberty. There's some degree of kundalini awakening. And of course, puberty is associated with the awakening of stronger sexual desires. And kundalini is often associated with the sexual desires, you know, it's kundalini energy. So that all seems to tie in there. But then you said that for most people, any sort of spiritual opening associated with that is very brief. Is that a good summary of what you just said? Yeah, you could say say that. You know, the thing is that the main thing is that when you are 10 years old, you don't have a clue of what is going on. And there's nobody around you that can really explain it to you. So that was the worst part that I thought that there was something terribly wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I have a friend whose brother died of a drug overdose and she had been very close to her brother and it, it had a similar effect on her. It just sort of, obviously it was very traumatic, but it kicked her into a, a higher state of consciousness, which she didn't lose. But, you know, if, if it happens when we are grown up and maybe we have prepared ourselves for this, it's a whole nother story, of course. Just give us a couple of examples. You, you mentioned that you were able to perceive the hypocrisy of the adults around you. They were saying one thing, but meaning another and so on. Are there any other examples of kind of psychic incidents or different perceptions that you had that were kind of unusual for a kid of that age? Even before my sister died, I remember that we were sitting in, in and just playing one Sunday morning very early, the sun came in and suddenly, just like this, I kind of saw, if you think about a net of light, like small light crystals in the air that was interwoven with the, like a net of light. And I could look through it, you know, look through the room, look through my sister, look through the furniture. And it was just for a brief moment. I was taken aback and didn't think more about it. But um, when my sister died, that came back in a much more profound uh, way, you know. So I was not able to really to shake it off, you know, I had to kind of sit through it until it, it stopped. So it was like x-ray vision, sort of? Yeah, I, I don't know how to bring it, you know. There's a lot of terms that we use for explanation of these things that I actually think has been more or less lost their real meaning, you know, like a lot of people come to me and said they think they have had a kundalini rising and they only had a something, a, a sore back. <laughs> you know, it's like the sore back is not good enough. You know? <laughs> right, it's going to be glorifying it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like like also uh, terms like channeling and stuff like that. What is channeling, you know? Uh, you know, there's all these terms that I, I have come to to question 
also in my own uh, in my own um, case, I always scrutinize these things because I don't want to be a victim of my own when it runs wild or whatever. Yeah, you don't want to just sort of be um, imagining stuff that's not true, no, right? That's another thing that I think we should talk about because to be able to fantasize is something we all can do, but actually visualize thing and our gift of visualizing is really important when you become more conscious about uh, what kind of power that is yeah. and how you can use it. Let's not forget to talk about that. I'll, I'll even make a note here. We'll get into it. Visualize and, and also um, having the right orientation to visualize and or desire the right things you know one can take oneself off in in wrong directions by misusing an ability like that which begins to grow exactly but as i I said before when you're a kid you have no chance to categorize it or in any way uh, grasp what this is all about so i just had to sit through it until it sort of more or less was vanishing you know yeah yeah they don't teach you that stuff in school speaking of school did you have a hard time fitting in in school being very sensitive yeah after that came in you know but the sensitivity it was impossible for me to attend school you know so i really have no schooling but i started to study as a 14 years old when one day by post i received a, a small book by um a Sufi master called Hasrat Inayat Khan. It was sent by Anonymous Post, and I, to this day, I don't know who sent it to me. But at that time, I was so really in a bad spot, you know. I was really depressed, and uh, yeah, I could not cope with reality. So I opened this book randomly, and that, I believe, actually uh, saved my life, because the first thing I re- wrote there, or read there, was, if you will approach us, we will bow down and lift you up. To me at that time, it was like the angel was talking to me. And uh, from that moment on, I knew that I was not alone. There weren't that many spiritual books around in Denmark or in Danish. And I could not speak English, but I um, sent for a book of Hazard and Iron Khan in English. And that was the book that, from which I learned to speak English. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm reading it from front to cover, cover to cover. And when I, I finished, I started all over again. Hmm. And I went through it until I could understand more and more. That's great. And you've also learned Aramaic. We'll be talking about that today. That's impressive. Yeah, this point about Jesus said, of course, seek and ye shall find. It's, I've seen this so many times where when someone has a sincere intention for God or for higher truth or whatever, stuff starts happening. You know, it's it's like, it's, it's as if the, whatever we want to call it, the universe, the guardian angels, whatever, they are, they respond quite, quite immediately sometimes as soon as the, the intention is sincere. Exactly. Knock and it'll be opened, you know? Yeah. And um, so that is exactly how it's working, you know? Actually, when you have the, the Aramaic key to the New Testament and the words of Yeshua or Jesus, I mean, it's like a, a treasure chest, you know, that is opening up. There's so much profound wisdom there that or else a lot of people have never heard about. Mm. So very deep stuff, very deep stuff, I would say. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be discussing that today in some detail. 
What kind of musician were you? Singer, guitar? I was singer, keyboardist. Keyboard? Keyboard. Yeah, piano player. And you started learning that as a child even? I was kind of musical from the start. I just had no musical ambitions. The, the reason why I came into a band was that I knew that I could not cope with what you call real life. So somebody over where you live uh, invented um, the youth movement in the 60s. And uh, I was so lucky to be part of it or else I had to invent it. And that would be too much for me. But I was part of that, you know, and became member of a band. Uh, that, and those guys in that band was all exactly as I, they, 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 they was looking for a place to be, you know, in the world. So we were became like brothers who who had this uh, thing together that we, it was us against the world. That's good. So all the guys in the band had a spiritual orientation? Yes, yes, most of them. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, I had a band like that too. It was my last band. I had been in several, but... I had learned to meditate and I got all, all the other guys meditating and it was nobody was taking drugs. It was just a really good group of people and uh, we, we, we did pretty well there. I ended up leaving it to become a, a meditation teacher, but it was a good thing to do as a teenager. But you went on for like many, many years and became quite what successful. What was the name of your band? Oh, you wouldn't have heard of it. It was called Good Hill and it was in Connecticut and we played around the East Coast a little bit. Okay. Yeah. What, and we are talking the 60s also? Yeah, late 60s up to 1970. I, I was a drummer. Okay. <laughs> I'll send you a photo but later. <laughs> we must get together one day and do some music. Oh, that'd us. be fun. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then, as I understand it, around the age of 14, 15, you started, you, you, you got that book, you said, when you were 14. Mm -hmm. And then you yeah. started gobbling up all the books you could find. You're reading <clears throat> the Bhagavad Gita and all kinds of things, anything you could get your hands on. Yeah, I really started uh, to study, you know, and that had been my real occupation and the music has been kind of second, you know. So, uh, yeah, and uh, very early on, I picked up on the Essenes, the scene, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and all this uh, and Jesuit's connection to the Essenes. Actually, I, the first book on this was written in 1898 or something. It was called Jesus, Jesus the Essene, Buddhism in Christendom. Huh. That was, you know, really, really mind-blowing. And so many years before they found the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, that so, was like 1945 or so when they found them, wasn't it? 1947. Seven. And uh, so it was the beginning for me to really investigate the Essenes. I was, the minute, the first thing I, uh, I read about them, it struck home completely clean. And I was on it, you know, from that moment on, really. Was Jesus in, an Essene? Of course, yes. There's uh -huh. no doubt. Of it. No doubt. Explain what the Essenes were. The Essenes was, um, you know, at the time of, around Jesus, there were three kind of sects. There was the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. And um, the Essenes, they didn't want to be part of the priesthood of Jerusalem because they thought it was, what do you call it, full of errors. And uh, yeah, it was fucked up, so to speak. They spoke the word, but they didn't walk the talk. So they went into the deserts. And actually, they were. We know that they were on on um, in there three hundred years before Yeshua was born. And the only the real 
purpose of the Essenes were to prepare the way for their Messiah, their teacher of righteousness, a new avatar, so to speak. And you should remember when Jeshua was born, nobody had heard about Christianity. Jeshua had never heard about it. Right. You know, it was invented many years later after he wasn't here around anymore. So to me, the question was, what tradition did he come from? Because to me, that was obvious that he had, he needed to have some background. He just didn't came down and just started all this. He, he was away for many years where the Bible don't or New Testament don't mention where he was. And I'll tell you why it doesn't mention it. Because the only sect that is not mentioned in the New Testament is actually the Essenes. Because they wrote the New Testament. And they, they wanted to keep their secrets, you know. When Yeshua came, they had all those prophecies about him. If you go to Isaiah in the Old Testament, you can read all about. There's almost a totally complete description of Jesus and his uh, destiny. And they had all kinds of signs, exactly as the, the Tibetan uh, Buddhists, the Lamas, when they, find, they have to find a new Dalai Lama, they have these signs to go off, and they look in the stars for the sign. And exactly did the three wise men from the Essene community at Qumran, just 12 kilometers east of Bethlehem. So they came from the east and went to Bethlehem where they saw the signs. They tested the new Messiah, the teacher of righteousness, and found that here he was. So after that, they took him into Jerusalem, and you can read in the New Testament, there was two scenes, Simon and Hannah, who were only waiting for the wise men to come and deliver the child in order for them to say, yes, this is it. And that, you can read in the New Testament, was exactly what they did. So after that, they went to Egypt, where they did the preparations. They went to Carmel afterwards in Israel close to our days Haifa, to the school of prophets there, where the Essenes also have a settlement, and uh, then to Qumran, and where he was taken also to Persia for some time, and to Egypt again, until he came to John the Baptist and took his last rites or his last initiation. And we can read after that, he went to 40 days in the desert, and then he started his mission. But you see... What the Essenes did not expect, they did not know that he would go out in public and start to share all the secrets with ordinary people. So they were also not only surprised, but taken aback and shocked over this. And some of them were actually also complaining about it, almost fighting him because they didn't want that. So this is something we should have in mind when we read the New Testament, that a lot of the things in there are written more or less in Aramaic codes, you know, because if you don't know the Aramaic language, you have no real chance to understand what that's all about. But he took it out, and that was his mission, and he told them, listen, let those who have ears hear and those who have eyes see. You know, he kept on... He said that many times, yeah. Yeah, because there's more to what I say than the I meet. You have to really open up to what I say. You have to understand it. And if you understand it and you follow my example, you can do even greater wonders than I. 
You know, and that's the challenge that still stands for each one of us to follow that example and understand what is he talking about. We need yeah. to understand it completely before we can follow suit, you know? Sure. So the point you just made is, you know, some people make this big fuss about Jesus that he was something that nobody else could ever aspire to and nobody else has ever been like or will be like or anything else. But he was saying, you know, we all have this potential. This is totally opposite in opposition to what you can read in the New Testament, what Jesus actually says there. He also says, remember, it was written that you are all you are all gods, mm-hmm. meaning that you are all children of God. I'm not the only one. And if you take the Aramaic word for Bacha, that need, or, or, or for, for uh, the only one, the only son of God, you know, there's no something. Bacha means the first one the first soul, the chosen one, but not the only one. If he was the only one, how could he say that we were also children of a God? How could he say, follow my example and you do even greater wonders than I? He was luring us into, come on, come on, look what I'm doing, listen to what I say, and go out and do even better. I mean, that was the whole purpose of it. So it was so, so many mistakes, you know, that he was the first soul coming in as Adam. And he has a whole line of incarnations. You know your own prophet, the sleeping prophet, Edgar Casey. Of course you know him. And I hope the people of America know him because he, long before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, he prophesied about them being found. He delivered so much stuff about the Essenes and Yeshua and their connection and how how everything was, yeah, how it was. So go and read some of his prophecies and his stuff about this. It's amazing. These things I have also been very, very uh, sufficient for me, you know, and very important in my studies to have Edgar Casey there also. I get the sense that the reason Christians, some Christians get so upset by this idea that you can also realize God and that you have God within you and all this stuff. I mean, it must say somewhere in the Bible that God is omnipresent, right? And if it says that, then obviously God permeates us as much as it, uh, God is within us as much as he's anywhere. So we could discover him within us if he's there. But somehow they take that as meaning that, I, I don't know, they just don't seem to grok the idea that God is to be found right within you. They think he's somewhere else uh, overseeing I, things, you know, from the clouds or I, something. I will share with you something very important in this matter, um, because it says in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, remember the kingdom of heaven is within you. He yeah, stresses that there. You there. Go. Mm-hmm. So if you know what kingdom of heaven is in, in Aramaic, it is Malkuta Deshem Aya. Malkuta Deshem Aya. Malkuta meaning kingdom, Deshem Aya, heavenly. But you see, within those two words, you have some root words. In Aramaic, a root word is a possibility awaiting its awakening or its uh, activating by you coming around and picking it up and saying it and actually giving it a sound. And that moment, it becomes a real reality. You connect to it. So the root word within Malkuta is milk. And from milk, you have the word Malachi, which means angel, mighty one, messenger, uh, king. And in 
Deshem Aya, and this is something that all those who are, are listening to this and watching this, I really want your attention now, because Deshem Aya. You remember we were told in the beginning of the Old Testament that we were born in the image of God. What does that mean? How does God look like? What is it, that image? That image is actually a power. And the beauty of this is that when Yeshua is telling us that the kingdom of heaven is within us, that the Malkutah de Shemaiah is within us, that Shem that is within the Shemaiah is actually that image of God in which we are born. That's the life, that's the power that can never die. Aya, Deshem Aya. Aya means who can never, who are there forever. It can never perish. So you have this eternal principle of God's image within you. And the beauty of the language of Ramech is all within the word for kingdom of heaven that Yeshua is actually saying that is within us. You see, it's all connected in that way. And it's so profound and beautiful that you can start working with the Shem, the Shemaya in you. Later on, if, if there's time, I can show you a very, very simple practice that has been so profound in, in my life that it can change. Any, you can do it anywhere, in the supermarket, at the breakfast table, in the meditation room, wherever you go, just sit down, connect to your breath, and start doing it. And I'll show you later, because I think it's some of the most important teaching I have to share with people. I want the viewers of this thing, that when they leave from here, to take some very, very precious thing with them as a gift. Great. Well, let's, definitely, uh, let's definitely take time for that. Would you agree that God or the kingdom of heaven is really within everything? It's within rocks and frogs and cows and everything. But the human being has a sort of a unique capacity to actually experience it. Indeed, the breath of God or that principle we call God is actually within everything. But man is born in the image of God, meaning that we have the ability to connect, if we allow it, that's another thing. We need to to give, because we were also given free will, meaning that you can choose to go down that path or down that path. You can take the high road or the, the low road. Sometimes we have to take the low road in order to experience something that will elevate us even beyond the high road. So there's no judgment in this, whatever you, how you look at it, it's just a matter of how do you feel if you connect to your intuition, your higher self, you know exactly what to do. Problem is, most people are not there. We are all enlightened already. We just have to wake up and take responsibility for it and start acting accordingly. Yeah, I have a kind of an ongoing conversation with a good friend who says something along the lines like, Who's to say that cats and dogs and mice and chickens and all these other simple, innocent animals are not enlightened? Who's to say that only human beings can? And I said, well, we've got to be clear on what we mean by enlightened, because if we really mean realizing the, the full divinity or the unboundedness of pure awareness, if we want to use that term, it takes a certain degree of 
complexity of nervous system to have that kind of realization. And that's why, you know, we evolve up to higher and higher and higher or more complex forms of embodiment of our nervous system so that ultimately we can recognize divinity within ourselves. And it doesn't seem to be something that the lower animals possess. Do you agree with that or, or not? No, yeah. To me, it's obvious that being born in the image of God and what that means, it means that we are here to make a difference and be co-creators. When we have free will, like you just said. Exactly. But we can talk more about it later, maybe. Okay, well, <laughs> we'll go on all day. We have so many things to talk about. So all the stuff that you were saying about that Jesus and the Essenes and the Sadducees, the Pharisees and all that, did you mainly get that knowledge from your study of the Old Testament and your ability to understand Aramaic? And, and is all that in the actual Old Testament that you can open up in any Bible, or is it more these other Gospels of Thomas and Philip and other Gospels that didn't really make it into the canonical text? It's a mixture of all the things, you know. And it's also a lot of things happened when I started to work with the seer and being his apprentice because he he never read anything or wrote or read anything, but he practiced a lot. And he, he had this ability to kind of connect to the book of life, so to speak, and read different things in there. And the book of life being a higher frequency of, uh, of consciousness, it is something that we all are connected to. That's sort but, of like the Akashic Records or something? Yeah, you, yes, exactly. Right. In this tradition, uh, it is called the book of life. And um, all people are connected to it. But you need to understand that and allow yourself to be connected to it and start working with it, you know, and uh, refine yourself, sharpen yourself uh, in order to. So I got a lot of uh, information from that. Also, about this. also, the beauty of it in my case was that I had read so many things and have studied so many years that I, every time I had something coming in, I could check it out with the scriptures and all the other things I have been reading, you know, or studying. So could this really be possible? Yes. And actually, you should remember that uh, the scenes for most of them and Jesus were Jews. So you can actually find a lot of things in the old Jewish scriptures about that tradition, you know, because that was also his tradition. One other point I wanted to ask you before we lose the thread is... Um you know, a lot of people think that Jesus went to India and studied there, and there are actually people in India who claim to have records of his having been there. What is your take on that? He had a teacher, a woman teacher, who brought him there to Persia and possibly also the northern part of India. And he was afterwards taken to Egypt, where he had the most important, the scenes had a school down there outside of Alexandria. But he was mostly into the Jewish tradition and the Jewish mystery schools. Okay. No doubt about it. Another sort of general question, and I want to get back into your personal story in a little while. We'll talk about, you know, you're having gotten sick for three years and having met the seer and all that. But another general question is, some people would wonder, how is it that 
what these people did 2,000 years ago is so relevant to us now. And aren't we guessing a lot as to who they actually were and what they actually did? Because things tend to get lost and distorted over long periods of time. No, there has always been people who could connect to to different kind of areas. And I have also something I have to... The seer told me that I have a background there. I was actually a scribe at Qumran, at the university there. And I, you know, the first time I came there, it was, I visited that place, was like coming home. When I was there in 69 with my band, we were taken out there on a day off. And we were just a group coming in and the guide was telling, and here was this and here was that. And suddenly I heard myself say, I have to interrupt you because it was the other way around. It was over there. (laughs) Yeah. To my luck, there was a huge German professor standing behind me. And he he said, I think the young man is right. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So you just had a kind of a recollection of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was also an archaeologist, yeah. Yeah, and he was uh, into these stuff. So so that was all strange to me, you know, because I did not know that I knew, you know. That's great. All right, let's get back to your story a little bit. So you kept playing in the band, and as I heard you tell the story, you weren't really practicing anything, but you were reading continuously. Sometimes you would even be backstage reading the Bhagavad Gita or something, and they'd have to pound on the door and say, time to come out, we got to play. <laughs> yeah, that was later on, yeah. Yeah, but you were pretty obsessed with that, uh, all this mm. spiritual literature. But you didn't start practicing till you met the seer, and for three years before you met the seer, you were sick. So it wasn't until mm. 95, when you would have been, what, 35 years old, no, 45 years old, that you got sick, and yeah. you were bedridden for three years with an unexplainable illness. Nobody could properly diagnose it. When you say you're bedridden, do you mean like you couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom? You were like totally flat on your back, or basically you just had to stay in bed the whole, most of the it time? It started, you know, like two days in bed, three days up, yeah. days back, back to bed. It became more and more... Until at last, I was just almost just lying there all the time. Wow. And were you in pain? Were you like del- oh, yeah, delirious yeah. or what? It was like if an, uh, what do you call uh, something? A sword an or a spear? Iron, yeah, an iron sword. Iron, hot iron rod? Yeah, coming out of my heart. You know, I was like crucified. Wow. Of course, I was depressed. I was, I could not even think sometimes, you know, and. The last things, uh, the last uh, period was like, you know, every day I was down in in a mud hole and I could see there was light up there. So I, with my last, you know, kind of efforts, I tried to, to have a, get a grip up there. And every time I was just about to have a grip, I just slide it down again. And I had to wait another day or two in, before I had the power to, to start doing that again. Then one day... Uh, a voice came in and said, Lars, if you are lying here and you feel so much pain, why not, when you are here anyway, take upon you the pain of all sick people in the world? Mm-hmm. And immediately when that was said, I didn't even hesitate. I knew that if, if I didn't comply to this, I would lose everything. So I said, yes. And the moment I said yes, it was like I was taken out of my body and just standing beside the the, the, the bed. 
and the pain disappeared. Four days later, I was connected to the seer. It was like, it was, I don't know, it was really a kind of test or something. Do you know who Adyashanti is? You ever hear about, have you heard of Adyashanti? No. He's an American spiritual teacher, but he wanted to be a professional bicycle racer. And, you know, he was really into it and training hard and all that. And he, um, and he ended up flat on his back for six months. He couldn't, he couldn't get out of bed, basically. And he didn't know why. Nobody knew what was wrong with him. And then he finally got out of bed, and he gradually began building up his bicycle racing thing again. And then, boom, flat on his back for six months again. And he finally you know, transitioned into this whole spiritual awakening. And he realized that he was, like, nature was telling him, you're not going to be a bicycle racer, you know, and we're just going to put you in bed here and you're going to just cook until you yeah. get the message. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, that, yeah, I can understand that so well. You met the seer and you, you know, because of some friend of yours was asking why you hadn't shown up for some meetings and she said, oh, you should meet this guy and he'll, he'll heal you. And so you end up talking on the phone for five minutes with him and take the story from there. Yeah, and uh, I just asked him, can you, I I need to come and see you. He was supposed to be in Copenhagen. And he said, no, I haven't got time for you for the next half year. But I said, you have to, because or else I'll die. And and at that moment, he did not know anything. He said, what's wrong with you? I said, I just, I've been in bed for three years and so, so, so. He said, hang on. And then there was complete silence, you know. And it was just like, and I was just about to hang out on because I thought he had connected and disconnected. Then he came back. He said, listen, you come to me at this and that address at that date and time in half a year. And until then, everything shall be all right. Goodbye. <laughs> and I was completely stunned, you know, of course. He said, okay. So I think it was... 20 minutes later, I felt a faint knocking in my neck, like somebody was... Something I experienced later on on many occasions. And I was so tired, I went to bed and slept for an hour or so, woke up, and a world that had been in black and white was suddenly in technicolor. I could hear the birds on the other side of the island sing, you know. It was like I I was given my life back. And from that moment on, in that half year, there were so many things happening to me, you know. I stopped smoking, which I never thought was possible for me, and a whole lot of things. It was amazing. That's great. You mentioned that it was almost like an, a hot iron rod going through your heart or something. You've probably heard of Kundalini. Do you think there was some kind of huge Kundalini awakening taking place in you, burning through your no. chakras or any such thing? No, 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 no. I'm positive. No, no, no. This had something to do with me not taking the choice that I knew I had to take. To leave showbiz and um, really start having trust in what I was really meant to do in this life. All my studies, you know, all my this and that. And it was now time for me to go and practice all these things, to walk the talk and start preparing for the work that I was here to do. I started to write when I was uh, 10 years old. I wrote everything down that was happening. Everything I saw, 
all my sensitivities and everything is written in, in a thing that I did when I was 10 years old. I started writing there. So I've always been the scribe. When I met the seer, he's, he called me the scribe. Oh, there's the scribe, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so I just could not take that choice. And he helped me to make it and took me up. I remember from the, the movie Brother, Son, Sister Moon by Franco Zeffirelli, there was a similar scene where St. Francis had come back from the Crusades, obviously doing something he wasn't meant to be doing. And he ended up getting really, really sick. And he was in bed for I don't know how long. And finally, he woke up out of it. And boom, he was like St. Francis. He, he woke up to this technicolor world, like you said, and the birds are beautiful. And he just kind of totally transformed his personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it was, as Jesuit was saying, you need to be reborn even in this life before you can enter the kingdom of heaven. And I felt at that moment, you know, when I started to work with Kelle, that I was more and more connected to everything that I had read about the kingdom of heaven. I did understand what the Malkuta Deshemaya was all about. Yeah. You know? So Keller was your teacher, and he said, come on down here in six months or something. So you recuperated and, I imagine, got your muscle, muscles back working again and stuff for for six months. And then you left Denmark and went down to southern France, as I recall, to, to he, he, work with yeah, him. I worked with him in southern France at Montségur, the, the holy place of the Cathars. But he was living in southern Spain, in Andalusia. So we also, uh, later on, I went there and worked with him there. And that was sometimes two months in a row, every day, just listening to him while he was working with his uh, clients who, who phoned him every morning from all over the world and just sitting next to him and picking up what was going on. And afterwards, we were, we were training all kinds of, of stuff, you know, like, like healing and uh, uh, what do we call it uh, when you you work with uh, oh, what's the name in English? Remote something. Yeah, remote healing, but also connecting to each other's uh, or what is please. It just slipped my mind. It'll come so, to you. Actually, I'll read a little sentence, a little paragraph here from your book, and maybe that'll jog your memory. But you said at one point he ordered you to stand half a meter in front of him, centering your eyes into his. He, quoting you, you say, for one hour, I was traveling through foreign universes and into strange landscapes of the soul, where many different shapes and forms, sensations and insights opened themselves to me. They call that gazing, but obviously, with someone like him, it was a very profound experience. It's gazing in the, in the, in the mirror, as he called it. And what is happening when you... But in your in, case, you were gazing at his, in his eyes and vice versa. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the eyes being the, the, the mirror of the soul. Windows, so you were, yeah. Yeah. And um, what is happening when you are looking into a mirror, you, you see yourself more or less. But you have to go through a whole process of all kinds of personal stuff that you, because this is very um, provocative, you know, it's provoking. And to look into his eyes is, you know, like, that was just too much, you know. But <laughs> this was something we did again and again, over and over. And until, you know, I realized that while two people are connecting in that way, you know, that is so strong and it's so powerful. And 
Yeah, I learned so much from that. So it was a very intimate scene. I, I heard you say that there was just you and two women who were his principal disciples, if you want to use that word, and uh, that you worked very closely with him. I also heard you say that he was he was quite a character. I guess he used to be a military man, and he was very strict. And mm. you know he would like you know not cut you very much slack, as the saying goes. And yeah. that also he broke some of your preconceptions about what a holy man might be like. He smoked, he drank yeah. wine, things like yeah. that. Yeah, that you know when I first had breakfast with him, I being a vegetarian for many years, and the first thing he did, he opened the fridge and took out some. Uh, uh, sausages, a tin of sausages and some uh, ham salad, you know, and stuff like that. And he looked at my plate and said, <laughs> I've got going to have something to eat. You know? <laughs> He's actually going to work here. Yeah, that was really, I thought, you know, he was a holy man. How can he, I mean, and I had to readjust all my preconceptions about what everything was, you know. And after some of the, the people who have watched the documentary where he's smoking and drinking, they said, how can he be a holy man when he's smoking and drinking? I said, mind you, he have never, ever said that anything about being a holy man. But despite that, he have helped thousands of people all over the world, given their life back. So maybe we people, who are playing around with spirituality and thinking this and that and how things could be, you know, forget about it. Just wipe that that uh, thing clean, you know, that slate clean and just come back to reality and start right where you are. What are you doing when you're on your own and nobody's watching you? You know, I had, uh, I saw a teacher who was teaching uh, vegetarianism and, and, and it was so terrible to eat meat. And in the break, I, I found him in the, in the, in the, down the street uh, having a sausage. You know? Oh, brother. <laughs> no, you know, and he was really embarrassed when I came in. <laughs> Things like that, it's ridiculous. Why pretend such a thing, you know? Why does go down and take that sauce. It, it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. I know that one, the word hypocrite was one of the ones that Jesus uses a lot in the Bible. You know, he's uh, uh, accusing these people mm. of being hypocrites. So, I yeah, get, get to be true to yourself. Yeah, of course. It doesn't matter. If you smoke, enjoy doing it or else stop doing it. Yeah. Yes, for everything, you know. And I think everything is a test, you know. I've been a smoker myself, and I had so much help, you know, when I was quitting it. I never thought I could quit it. I tried so many times, and I failed every time. But suddenly, the time was right. And the difference for me in that moment was I recognized it. I had so many opportunities before that I came to know it later, but I never saw it because I was not there. So to be aware and to be present in our life, that's the most important thing in anything. We cannot succeed in anything if we are not there when we are called to be there. Yeah. Now, I don't think we want to give the impression that whatever you do doesn't have an influence on you, obviously. Nisargadatta Maharaj was an Indian sage, very highly respected. He was a chain smoker. He actually sold cigarettes for a living. And he ended up dying of cancer. And there's a famous Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was an alcoholic, and he died in his 40s of alcoholism. So these, the, the body is the temple of the soul, and we don't want to destroy it. Mm. 
Exactly. Yeah. But I've come to realize that there's a reason for everything. And I'm not the one to judge why that person are doing this, or even if I don't understand it, but I'm not the one who can judge anybody. I mean, I have my own things to look after yeah. and I try to work it out. And I believe that everybody is uh, on their way to do the exact same thing. So we just have to quit all this craziness. There's that saying about not worrying about the moat in your neighbor's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. There it is again. You know, everything is actually in there. Yeah. So you mentioned reincarnation a little while ago. In all of your studies, have you found reincarnation to be part of the original teachings that Jesus was attuned to and was espousing? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, the Essenes, they were not believers. They knew. What we have to understand is the Essenes were actually some kind of quantum physics in a way, but just the difference between our day quantum physics and them was that today we are presented by a lot of theories. They practiced it. They consciously knew about it. Carl Gustav Jung, he came to know that secret. Maybe remember that very famous interview where he was asked, Dr. Jung, do you believe in God? And he said, no, I don't believe in God. I know. This knowledge, if I had been the interviewer, I would followed up by what is it that you know about that we have forgotten and elaborated on that. But I think that was exactly what the Essenes, because they were practicing the chariot of fire practices that were by which they were able to, to leave their bodies. They were able to connect to higher consciousness levels and the book of life. So they were prophets they were very uh, skilled healers and um, astrologers and stargazers and dream interpreters and, you know. And you know all this because of your, your ability to speak Aramaic and to have read all these ancient manuscripts. That's, that's where you're getting all, all this that you're saying? Yeah, yeah but, there's, but there were also historians uh, from the time of Jesus who, who spoke about these things and told that they were the most respected people around and and they were able they believed in reincarnation and all sure my impression and i'm by no means an expert is that there was all kinds of politics and intrigue and whatnot and uh, personal perspectives that ended up getting all these beautiful scriptures and all this wonderful knowledge edited down and all kinds of things excluded that some person or other felt it was inconvenient. I, I remember hearing there was some emperor who thought that reincarnation shouldn't be in there, so he made sure that got out. So, yeah, I wonder what, you know, what people now find as the New Testament. I wonder what percentage of the actual knowledge that it represents is left, you know, maybe 10%, 20% or something. Yeah, you remember the part when they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah who have come back? And he said, no. But later on, Jesus said, you didn't recognize him. You didn't recognize Elijah when he came and you treated him just like you killed him. He was referring to John? Yeah, of course. And if you know the story about Elijah, you would know that he had a pupil called Elisha. You can read about in in the Old Testament, in the, the book of Kings, the second book of Kings. And Elijah 
and Elisha. Elisha, when, when Elijah died, or he left, he was taken up by God, we can read, in the chariot of fire. It happened exactly at the same spot at the river Jordan, where many years later, Elijah was baptizing Elisha, or John the Baptist was doing to Jeshua. So Jeshua was a reincarnation of Elisha. And if you read about Elisha, you can read, he did exactly the same things as Jesus. He went around healing people. He was raising the dead. He was doing all these food uh, miracles with feeding. Logs and fishes and all. Exactly the same. It's in there, in the Old Testament. So there he's uh, actually telling, yes, I'm Elisha, who have come back, and he was Elijah. And you can read, uh, go and see the the prophecies and things about from Edgar Casey. Do you remember that Paul he said, Yeshua was after the order of Melchizedek forever. What is the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek is actually an early incarnation of Yeshua also. So all the early incarnations of Yeshua is that's making up the order of the Melchizedek, meaning the king of righteousness, what that what is Melchizedek means, the king of righteousness. And the teacher of righteousness was the leader of the Essenes. You can read all about it in the, the Dead Scroll, Dead Sea Scrolls. So Yeshua was the new Melchizedek. He was the new avatar, so to speak the one that they have been waiting for for so many years. And without knowing it, he suddenly now is uh, the leader of or the, the, the big thing in Christianity. But he had never heard about it. And I think he would not understand anything about that is all about. <laughs> yeah. He did from, from what he was about, you know. Yeah. Just to make clear, I understand what you just said. So you said that the being that we refer to as Jesus actually had a number of other reincarnations in which, I don't know how many years prior or how many how far back it goes, but in which he did similar things to what Jesus is reputed to have done, similar miraculous things. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how widely spaced those different incarnations were, but maybe you could tell us, but it's been 2,000 years apparently since his last one, and everybody keeps waiting for the next one. Do you think there's going to be a next one? Or have there been any between 2,000 years ago and today? It's actually something that goes on within each one of us. He said before he left to his disciples, he said, if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit will not be able to play the role that is actually, because now it's being given to everybody. Now it's a matter of what you choose. So if I don't leave now, you would not be able, you would follow me forever. But listen, there's no gurus anymore. The whole guru thing is over. Now you go and do and make, because haven't I told you that the kingdom of heaven is within you? Okay? So now you go and connect to it, because wherever you go, you bring it with you. So you don't have to run from Herodes to Pilatus. You don't have to go there or there, because right where you are is where the kingdom is. And this still stands. And we now is the time that we have to understand it and really take it upon us 
and start connecting. It doesn't mean that Yeshua was not a son of God. He was just not the only begotten one. He was the first one. He was our big brother. And he come to us through all the ages as an avatar, trying to tell us the same story over and over again. And I think now it's the time for us to really maybe just take another stand and choose again. Even when you say the first one, I think, eh, you know, it's like there are probably trillions of planets in the universe with highly evolved life on them, each of which have had their own sages and saviors. And, and even if we narrow it down to this little planet, yeah, yeah, there have probably yeah. been people tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago of that caliber. You have a kind of, I don't know what to call it, you have a kind of... A vessel or something? Yeah, a, a vessel of possibilities, mm-hmm. you know. And Yeshua was given to us together with us. But I think that the same kind of spirit, where did Yeshua go when he left here? Maybe he went to some other system out there. Where did Buddha go? Where did all those, when they were taken up by God, they didn't die. They were taken up. You know, you have the, the transfiguration. It's like the rainbow body of the Buddhists. And all these can, it's in all traditions, they, they tell about these things. And the main thing for us, we don't have to speculate where did they go. Now we have to speculate, where are we going? Right. Yeah, we can do the same. We have been told that. So why don't we just take on our shoes and start working on this? I remember hearing you say that you actually have experienced a UFO, maybe more than once even. And uh, do you think that, um, you know, and you you mentioned the phrase chariots of fire recently, and some people feel like some of the accounts of things that happened, gods coming down from the sky and all this stuff, relate to actual extraterrestrials and that they are somehow involved in the affairs of, of our planet perhaps with various different motivations, but some of them being very spiritual and helping to foster our, our spiritual enlightenment. Do you, you have any thoughts on that? Of course. If you were going back 2,000 years in time and you went to the Essene University and you came down in a UFO and you stepped out and said, hey, friends, come and take a ride in this, and they'll just look at it and you'll say, Why? We are able to travel anywhere we want without this piece of crap, you know. (laughs) In many ways, the thought of us going into a rocket and go to the moon is very primitive. We are surrounded by beings that don't need any UFOs to travel anywhere because they can go wherever they want. But they live in subtle bodies and we have gross bodies. Have you ever seen UFOs? They're there, and suddenly they're not there. Right. You don't even see they go anywhere. They just aren't there anymore. Poof. It's just like you, you turn on the light and you turn it out again. You know? They're gone. They're gone. So this is a matter of choice. They are there all the time, even if we don't see them, doing whatever they did. They're walking around between us with all kinds of tasks to do or looking after us or helping us, they could actually be part of the whole angel, angelic thing, you know. But when I worked with the seer, if a client phoned him and said so and so and so, he would say, okay, do you mind me? I have to go out before time and space to look at this. 
And people have said, oh, before time and space, this will are going to take a, a long time. But actually what he meant, he, he was just go into another kind of consciousness, to another consciousness brain before time and space. It's all there. It's part of us. You can go there. I can go. Everybody can go. People are even going there without knowing what happened. Just like that, like a flash, and they are coming back. Every night when you sleep, we leave our body. We go out, we have, we have been educated, or we are going out to do different kind of things on other levels of consciousness. And you come back, and the last plane is the astral planes, the lower astral planes maybe, and you don't remember a, a thing about what was going on. But this is kind of our abilities and Without it, we will not be able to live at all. So we have actually there two kinds of life, one that we are conscious about and one we are not conscious about. But just imagine that we have many more layers that are going on simultaneously. In my father's house, there are many, in my father's, what is it? There are many mansions. In my father's house, there's many mansions. And that means there's many other universes, other planets, other consciousness levels. You pick one, you go there. So the the difference between our quantum physics and the Essenes, for example, is that they could go there by choice, sit down and sit themselves into the chariot of fire situation and just go. It's all in the Kabbalah. It's all in, in many of their scriptures. Yeah, I think probably everybody, if anybody doesn't resonate with what Lars is saying, feel free to send in a question, but I think it's probably pretty clear what he's saying. And even physics tells us there's a level of creation that is more fundamental than time and space, and then time and space kind of emerge from that that deep level. So what you're saying is that human beings, you know, they don't need some big large hadron collider or something. They they have a nervous system which can actually take them to that level. You know, that it's if you think about it, to 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 step into a, some kind of machine that should take you somewhere, you know, light years out, it sounds a little bit, you know, it, you forget about your own abilities and our connection. Remember, we were born in the image of God, and we have to really understand what it means. But the gift, all the gifts we are given, you know. Somebody once asked Marjim Hashyogi about UFOs, and he said, eh, they're truck drivers of the universe. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of primitive thing, you know, right. compared to what you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, you were with the seer for seven years, studying, studying. Um, you know, if you could summarize, like, what kind of person were you after seven years compared to what you were when you first met him, what kind of changes did you undergo? And were those changes permanent? I was so much more both humble and much more confident in what I was about. And by that I mean when I met him and saw what he was doing and all the problems he had personally of coping with this world. What for kind of problems? Help- he could not cope with this world. He had very hard to socialize because those people in his generation he wanted to socialize with in, in southern Spain were all playing golf, you know. And, they didn't you know, understand the, him, yeah. The, you know, the Florida, Miami thing. 
but he just tried so hard. Didn't and that was, yeah, they had not a clue that didn't have a clue of what he was all about. So there was nobody he could talk about. He was a lonely man. So I was the one. Every time I left him after we had been working together for a month or two, a week after I had come home, he, oh, you, you need to come down here again. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and it suited me well, you know. And uh, that just, until we, when I was, after years, I became his good friend, you know, and we That's were on equal footing, so to speak, you know, on many of He came also to, to respect the things I was doing. And, uh, you know, he was not the one who gave things away in that way. You know, in the beginning, he said to me, I really don't understand why I said yes to take you in. <laughs> I mean, how could I be so stupid? He thought you were, and, he was scolding you, right? Yeah, really, really. And that was going on for quite a while. Mm. But it's sweet that you say that you became his good friend and that he had been kind of lonely. It's sweet. It's so it was uh, mutually beneficial. It wasn't just him helping you. No, no. We had something to give each other. That's great. And so aside from humility and confidence, what changes did you undergo through your tutelage with him? The practice bit, because suddenly everything I read was giving shoes to walk in, you know. Mm, so he got you into practicing as opposed really? to just reading. Yeah, and also really gave me some explanation of how everything worked that when what is a healing all about. You know, we could come into a, a local bodega out in the mountains, you know, and they served only one wine there, the local one that off, very often was very, very bad, sour-like. <clears throat> so he just took the, the wine and looked at it for just... Uh, and then he gave it to me and said, try it now. Oh, wow. It just became softer and much more, you know. Does it need some more? He said. And so I would tell him, yeah, give it some more. <laughs> and suddenly he was sitting there drinking the, the most profound and beautiful wine. And he, he said, listen, I asked him, how can you do that? And he showed me how to do it. And you can do it. Everybody can do it. You just have the wine, the glass of wine in front of you. So you put your hand around it. And just from the middle of your palm, the center of your palm, you feel that there is a connection and you create a sacred space around the wine. And when you can feel it really uh, electrifying between the two hands, you put your hands on top of the glass and you send from the center of your palm gas blue light into the wine, just like a laser beam. And when you feel that is enough, from your fingers, tips of your fingers, you send golden light in. And when you're finished, you just close it. He did all these things in one glance. And this is also something I do now when I, every time I eat my dinner or whatever, I just connect to the food. You see, it doesn't matter what kind of wine has an archetypical mother archetype of wine that holds all the best qualities of any wine. So what he does, he connects it to the mother of all wines. Like if it should heal you, he would take you back to your original state and get rid of all the, the things that you have been collecting and who is now weighing you down or are more or less making you ill. 
he will take that away and bring you back to your original state, back to zero. He would, so, so to speak, zero you and connect you to your highest qualities, bringing you back to the best version of who you were supposed to be. So you can do that with anything. And that's really the secret behind it, that you have to focus on that. Be there when you are needed and not just be there intellectual, but be there with your whole being, so your light being. The child of God within you has to really be present there. So it has nothing to do with your personality. It is about who you really are. So when Jesus turned water into wine or multiplied the loaves and fishes or raised the dead or walked on water and all that stuff, perhaps he was doing something similar, but perhaps even to a a much more profound degree, huh? Exactly. I heard you tell a story of getting into a pretty serious car accident when you were driving, I guess, from somewhere back to Denmark, and uh, you experienced your guardian angel. I thought it might be interesting for you to tell that story. Yeah, I was driving home. I had been really busy. I had also been with the seer, and I have had a, a group I had been taking around. It had been a long season for me, you know, being both uh, taught by the seer and also doing my own thing there. And I was, I remembered I was going home. I woke up two o'clock in the morning and just went straight direction Denmark. And I woke, I came by after I have hit the, uh, I was driving 140 kilometers an hour and I Whoa. just hit the, yeah, median, the median divider, they call it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I lost control of the car. It was somersaulting. It was rolling over, you know, out in the field, two meters down. And I woke up 50 meters from the car and it was standing there, you know, and I thought I was di- I, I had died. It was so peaceful. And I came back into my body through my crown and, and the first thing I saw was a young woman standing in front of me, I think five meters away from me, big smile. She had a cross, equal footed cross around her neck. And she said, when you can survive this, you can survive anything. And she was just smiling. It was there that I saw that it was a German man sitting, kneeling beside me and was very worried. But at no time did that young woman and he has any communication. So when I was taken by um, the rescue team, the last thing I saw and heard her say was, don't worry about the thing. Everything is taken care of. And she was just smiling and waving. (laughs) And when I came to the hospital, there was nothing. I mean, it was a miracle that I survived. My body, of course, felt like it had been doing 50 rounds with Mike Tyson or something. (laughs) But besides that, there was nothing wrong. So when I came back, I wanted to connect to those two people. But because there was nobody else in the accident, they didn't take any report. But I'm... There's no doubt in my mind that she was my guardian angel who came there in that situation. And every day since that, I talk to my guardian angel and just recognize her and, and talk, have a chat with her. Did you have your seatbelt on or did that German guy take you out of the car and drag you away? No, I went out of the car myself and just collapsed uh-huh. right You unhooked it. yourself and got out? Yeah. Everything just automatically. And he brought me away from the car because he was afraid it would explode or something. Right, right. 
So I've, I heard you say when you told this story that you feel that everybody has a guardian angel, at least one, and that they kind of stay with us all and of our I, lives. I'm positive. I mean, even before this accident, I knew about these things and felt a connection. But that was the manifestation of her. She manifested in front of me. Yeah. Yeah, I have at least one friend and actually more who see this stuff routinely. It's just like you and I see other people walking down the street. They see these subtler beings. Apparently, they sometimes there's more than one. And they're, they're constantly attending to us and mm-hmm. helping us in various ways. It must be yeah. a f- very frustrating job in some cases because we're, <laughs> we're so crazy. <laughs> you can say that. Yeah. 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 A nice question came in from Paul Diaz in Santa Cruz, California. Paul asks, um, could you speak on how best to integrate intense awakening experiences? Sometimes the nervous system plays catch-up to the realization and is in a state of sensitivity too great for functioning in the so-called normal world. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, in other words, he's saying sometimes you have an intense awakening and your nervous system takes a while to adjust to it. And so, like you said, when you were 10, it's too sensitive to function in the normal world. So I guess he's asking, well, how do you adjust? How do you acclimate? How do you stabilize so that you can function in the normal world and yet live this increased awakening that you have undergone? The thing is that if you are not aware of what is happening to you, and you, have, you cannot explain it to yourself and nobody can help you explain what is going on. It makes you so uncertain that it is a, it's a stress on your nervous system, of course. But if you have a f- clue of what is going on, I would say that if it stress you in, in your nervous system in that way, it means that there is something in there that needs to be purified. So you must pay attention to it. And maybe you need to go to a therapist or whatever, I don't know. Or you start praying and have conversations with God every day or with your angel. You can do that at the same time too. I would say find a good therapist that know about these things that can help you go through it and uh, get rid of all the... A lot of times it's old stuff, maybe even from a former incarnation that you brought with you that needed some attention, and now it's the time for it. So I would say, don't be scared ever, but take care of it. Yeah. And it's also good to take time out to rest and to really meditate on it, to go deep into it, connect to it. That's the best thing. Yeah, I would add also, Paul, Lars was just saying, taking care of yourself, getting enough sleep, wholesome food, Good exercise, you know, some grounding exercises like swimming or walking in the woods or maybe some, some yoga to make your body more flexible and, and all that stuff. You know, nice grounding stuff and avoiding any intoxicants or drugs. And also, you know, don't over meditate. If you're doing some kind of spiritual practice and it's getting really intense, you might need to scale back a little bit and don't do more because it'll be even more difficult to handle. But you can't integrate this stuff. I mean, the greatest sages who ever lived are are living in a state that if we were to go into that state suddenly, we'd explode. (laughs) But they have integrated it and are able to function in that state, and that's the whole idea. So hopefully that helps. Another question came in here. This is from someone named Tom in Southgate, Michigan. 
Tom asks, what do you both think about the subject of spiritual warfare being a reality for humankind to contend with, some kind of battle for souls or energy? I think he's asking, are there some kind of good and evil forces, you know, that are fighting over us and trying to win our souls over to the dark side or the light side or something? Do you have any thoughts on that? In this world, we are living in on the three-dimensional plane. We are the creators of any dark or, again, it's a matter of choice. I feel that a lot of the lower astral things that is going on is all created by man. When people, they start complaining that how can there be a God when there's war there and famine there? And I have to remind them, it is all because of the choices that we made, you know, because we were given this gift. We were even being ambassadors of God and we were told, take care of this, take care of the animals, take care of Mother Earth, please. But what have we done? So there's so many things we didn't understand. So we created also a lot of mind stuff that is going on. The seer, he said, if you think that thoughts are free of, at all free, forget it. They create reality. You create reality with your thoughts, you know. They leave a mark. The worst thing about the pollution that is going on is actually the pollution created by our thoughts and deeds. And we have to deal with that. So I think that is what we experience when there is dark and uh, light forces. There's also people who, who ask me, how can we protect ourselves? But even the thought of that you need protection will attract something that will attack you. If you know that nothing can attack you, if you keep to your path and do your work, nothing can. It's impossible. If you open yourself up to it by start to dealing with all this stuff. I mean, there's, you don't have to think that there's a lot of thing going out up here. We are masters of doing that here on earth ourselves. It's true. I think where you put your attention makes a big difference. I mean, if you spend a lot of time watching horror movies and putting your attention on negative things, and also if you weaken your, yourself with various substances and so on, you become much more susceptible to negative influences wherever they may be coming from. Exactly. But just as a follow-up question, if it's true that we have guardian angels who are positive and holy and are looking out for our welfare, could mm-hmm. it not also be that there are negative counterparts to those who are mischief makers who are trying to make trouble for us? The fallen angels are us. End of story. So those other angels, what we are talking about, the guardian angels, are here for us. But if you have a friend in Michigan... And you phone that friend every day, and that friend will never answer your call. You decide to go to a meeting and see that friend, and you can see it that, that your friend is in the house. You go and knock the door, but it isn't open. They take down all the, the curtains, you know, that obviously don't want to meet you. Then you give up. The same with your angels. They try to contact us every day, you know. They try to help us. But if we don't respond... If you're not connected to your higher intuition or your higher self and you just refuse and you turn your back all the time, you need to go down on a bed for three years or something like <laughs> crazy like that in order to find out that you must change. That's when we, we get a, a lot of heavy stuff on the head or our wives leave us or you're getting sacked or whatever. It's a wake-up call, yeah. Exactly. 
And that is the angel Uriel who comes in and said, the fire of God, so to speak, who said, wake up. Yeah. And maybe we don't have to be sick for three years or have some horrible thing to happen to us if we go ahead and take the initiative to, exactly. you know, start doing that, practices yeah, or whatever. The, that's the message. Yeah. Connect to the best version of you and forget about all the other stuff. A question came in from someone named Sarah in the UK. She says, you mentioned the chariot of fire. This is mm-hmm. commonly referred to as the, the Merkaba in various yes. traditions, a vehicle to let the subtle body travel to other astral realms. Can you say anything about activating the Merkaba? Yeah, it's all in my books and in my workshops. There is a, a whole kind of recipe for opening up to that. It's called Bishem Adonai, Mia Meni Mikael, Umi Smoli Gabriel, Umi Lefanai Uriel, Umi Akorai Raphael, Veal Roshi Shekina El, Levi Mashiach. And that's all Aramaic words? Yeah, that is the scene code, so to speak, for the chariot of fire, for the Merkaba. But that is not all. This is just the introduction to it. That is, and you, you need to understand every word of what that is, and you have to connect to it with your whole being. But that is my work, so to speak, to introduce uh, people who, who are interested in this tradition into that and to the esoteric Christianity. Can I say something? Yes, please. Uh-huh. To that lady, you can go to YouTube and you can write my name and uh, the Gate of Light and you will see a half an hour film from the, the Cave 4 from the Qumran where most of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And in that cave, Yeshua spent 40 days in the desert. And you can see me perform this chariot of fire there. The gate of light and my name. And you'll find it. Okay, good. And if you want, I could even find that and put a link on your page on BatGap so people can hop right to it. That is very crucial to my work. This is a, a special moment in my work. Quick question, and then I'm going to ask you something that might take us a little longer to discuss. This is Susan from New York asks, please ask Lars to talk a bit about the Kabbalah and what he learned about it. There are so many Kabbalistic schools. I've been traveling to Israel a lot, and I also spoke to some of the the greatest uh, rabbis there and talking about these things. And you will find that if you go into one Kabbalistic school, they have one recipe and one way to work, and if you go into another, and so on. So they have put in a lot of protection, so to speak, so people that are not Jews, <laughs> they are not able to get in and get the real commonia, what you call it, the real, the real teaching, the, the real deal, yeah. So it is very much up to you, whoever you are, to find your way into it. And the problem with that is there's so many pitfalls and dead ends. So most people, they just give up. But I have been kind of lucky, you know, so to speak, that I was able to know the language and I could work with these things and I could ask the rabbis and because they knew I could talk the language, they would open up some of these stuff for me, you know. But mostly it is about practicing yourself and finding how does this feel to you? What does this do to me? If somebody came to you and said, you have to stand on your head 
two times half an hour every day. You have to put the uh, war and peace on top, you know, by, you know, <laughs> and uh, you have to stand there for, for half an hour. Then you go into the, and if you don't have a clue why you're supposed to do it, but you're just doing it, nothing will happen. So this tells you that, you know, you have to really invest yourself in this. And I would like to just share something with you, you know, because Christianity is more or less built on one word, sin, sin. But actually, there's no word for sin in Aramaic. Sin means when you're missing the mark. And when you miss the mark, you can only do that because you're not present. Yes. So to be there, as I told before, and to be present and to be there when you're needed and just invest your whole being into whatever you're doing, then you'll succeed. And when I'm talking about success, I'm not talking about success in life or anything. Some of the most successful people in our reality, they will never come close to what I'm talking about, but they can still be successful. So to succeed in what I'm talking about is a total investment of your whole being, not just your business side. You know, this is the innermost part of you that must be exposed and open up like a heart that opens up towards this and you send all your inner remember Jesus is saying to us don't hide your light underneath a bushel so that inner light is that light of the inner kingdom that he's telling us is within us now you must allow this light to shine out into the world and in, create a sacred space wherever you go, in the supermarket, when you're doing your laundry, whatever you are doing, when you make love to your lover, when you speak to your best friend or what, whoever you meet, you can actually be in that sacred space. But it takes practice. So this is what my work, my personal work has all. What I'm talking about are personal experiences, not some crazy theories that are read in books, you know. Because I have read so many books, you know, and when I met the seer, I understood one thing that I didn't understand anything. I didn't have a clue of what they were talking about. But when I met him, who have never really read anything, I started slowly. It dawned on me I was the biggest fool on earth, the biggest idiot, because I had parked all my stuff on one number and it was the wrong one. This is the thing. Investors, if you follow the Bishem Adonai that I just recited before, you need to go in and read every line and understand what it means and take it in. Meditate on each line, on each angel that is, is mentioned there. And, and that one to, is in the God formula or, or where do you it, get it that? It is in the, in, in the God formula. It's in my book, The Law of Light. It's also in my book, The Gate of Light. That is all talking about this stuff. Okay. And also, before we finish today, you're going to give us a practice. But we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. So, as I mentioned to you before we started, like I listened to about 12 hours of your talks and interviews in the past week. I'm crazy. I, <laughs> there's plenty of time now with this shutdown. And I walk in the woods and I, I listen to hours and hours of the person I'm going to interview next. And it, it's a wonderful way to spend the week. And I'd say that if anything, the majority of the time I heard you speaking, you were talking about something which is summarized in this little quote that I'll read right now. In the Gospel of Thomas, Yeshua says the following, 
when you make the two one, and when you make the male and the female into a single being, so that the male is not male and the female not female, then you will enter the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So let's discuss that. We have to go right back to the Old Testament where it said that God created man in his own image. As man and woman, he created them. So there you have the man and the woman. So if I'll take you back to Malkutah de Shemaya, the kingdom of heaven, the first letter of Malkutah is Mem, which is a feminine. And the first letter of Shemaya is Shin, which is fire and masculine. So you have water, Mem, and you have Shin, fire, feminine and masculine in the kingdom of heaven. And you remember that John the Baptist, he said in the New Testament, I came to baptize you with water, but there will come somebody after me who will baptize you with fire. So there you have it again, the feminine and the masculine. When they become one, you can move mountains. So they are talking about the feminine and masculine within you and in me and everybody else. So you just have to elaborate what does that mean? What kind of qualities is the masculine in you? And what is the feminine in you? All this I have tried to elaborate in my little small book, The God Formula. So it's all in there. But you see, the, the, the practice I really wanted to share with you is, you know that Yeshua is talking about he will send the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit in Aramaic is Hoka de Kutia. Just take the sound in, just taste it. Hoka de Kutia, meaning Hoka, meaning electricity, breath, spirit, and de Kutia as it was supposed to be, holy. So Holy Spirit, Hoka de Kutia. Think of that as a mantra. So you inhale through the heart chakra in the middle of the best bone while you're saying to yourself, Rukatakutsha. Pause. And when you exhale, you use the Aramaic word for kingdom of heaven, which is Malkuta de Shemaya. So meaning you are now activating the Rukatakutsha on your inhaling breath and manifesting the kingdom of heaven around you with Malkuta de Shemaya. So just try this, and the breath must come all the way down to your stomach. So when you inhale, the stomach must come out, and when you exhale, just press your stomach in slightly. So it goes like this. Inhale, Rukatakutsha, Malkuta de Shemaya. Rukatakutsha, Malkuta de Shemaya. Or, until you are familiar with the Aramaic, you can say, Holy Spirit, Kingdom of Heaven. Holy Spirit, Kingdom of Heaven. You are calling for the Holy Spirit. You are, so to speak, activating it, because it's right there where you are. And you are manifesting the inner Kingdom of Heaven around you on exhaling. Hmm? This is my daily practice, wherever I go. If I come into a place that where there's a tense feeling or atmosphere, I sit down in a corner 
for five minutes and do this without anybody knowing me doing it. And you will see the whole thing evaporating and everything will be, be calm and fine and you just go on. You can do it anywhere. And you can heal yourself with it when you become familiar with it. It's the strongest prayer that uh, I know. And it's my experience. And I've done it for so many years now that I use it in healings. In Is there a web page where these instructions are written down? It's in the God Formula. In the God Formula book. Okay, yeah. good. It's shown there how it's, it's done and also some variations of it how you can work with it. Yeah, there's a diagram actually in, in the book. Aside from doing it in a tense situation or while you're standing in line at the post office or something, do you sit down for a certain amount of time in the morning or something and do that practice? Yeah, I do it uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. If anybody has any questions about that while we're still talking here, feel free to send them in. Here's a question that came in from Cheryl Folds from Panama City Beach, Florida. She asks, um, did the original apostles do what Jesus asked them to do when he sent them out? Or was the message mixed in with their human tendencies? In other words, did they sort of corrupt what he had asked them to do? Yeah, some of them did, you know. I, I mean, there was so many different people between them. Of course, they had different issues, and some of them was not really there. If you collect so many people or whatever, there will always be different planes and niveau for those. So they all had, each had their own thing to deal with on top of what they were doing. But I think that um, they learned, some of them really became uh, very good healers and prophets. I heard you talk a lot about Mary Magdalene and how she was not only not a prostitute, as she has been portrayed, but was Jesus's mate, his wife, and was a high priestess in her own right, even before mm-hmm. they got together. She was a highly spiritual person. I guess it was Peter, you said, who was kind of jealous of her because Jesus was giving her so much attention and so much authority and everything, and perhaps he was responsible for her tarnished reputation that ended up coming down through the ages. Yeah, the first time I really recognized her was I was waiting for the Nakamati scriptures, you know, the Thomas, Gospel of Thomas and Philip and Truth and all these gospels. They were being, uh, there was, I was waiting in, this was in 1984 for an English translation of all those scriptures that were found in Egypt in 1945. And uh, when I, it came, I just sat down and started reading from cover to cover. And after the Gospel of Thomas, I came to the Gospel of Philip. And I just read, and it was, I mean, I was blown out of my chair, you know, until I came to that sentence. Mary of the Magdalene was the disciple that Jesus loved the most and often kissed on the... And then there was a hole in the manuscript, <laughs> you know, two brackets. So after having the shock that he was actually kissing her very often because he had chosen her somehow... I just had to find out what part of the body he kissed her on. <laughs> in a, an old Jewish scriptures, much later I found where they were writing about the customs of the days of Jesus. Married couples never kissed each other in public. They never showed any kind of emotional things between them. But in another place I found that that was the way that the initiated recognized each other and revered each other 
they kissed each other on the mouth. And we remember the kiss of Judas. So Judas might also have been an initiated, and it would have been strange if he hadn't come up to Jesus and kissed him, because he could have just pointed him out. He didn't have to go and kiss him. But he had to, in order to keep the rule, you know, between them. It was so a custom. Mary, yeah, the custom. So Mary the Magdalene was, of course, on equal footing of Yeshua, because you can also read she anointed him uh, more than once. And you can read in the Jewish scriptures that the one who's going to anoint somebody must be totally equal with that person. So if she was a whore, he must be a thief. But we can read that he was Yeshua Nazarene. He was Yeshua the Nazarene, meaning he was the initiated one or the one who knows about things. So she was Miriam the Magdalene, meaning Miriam the Exalted One. That was her initiated name. Like John was the Baptist. That was his initiated name. He, that was what, why he was here. So she was the one who was above, who could see things. She was a prophet and she was a healer, a great healer. So that was what she was all about. And of course, they were married. We can read in the, the New Testament that the marriage at Cana, just after he started his mission, that is the marriage to Mary the Magdalene. She had been down with the therapist in near outside Alexandria in Egypt to be educated there. And uh, there was an, a mystery school there that also educated women. And she came back. And from there on, she was the teacher of the women disciples and he was of the male disciples. No doubt about it. And it was no ordinary marriage. They were mates because they had this common thing. They were there actually also to show the masculine and the feminine, to manifest it. And there is an old gospel of the gospel of the Nazarenes where Jesuit is saying something like this. I and my bride are one, exactly as Mary the Magdalene, who I have chosen for myself as an example, is one with me. So he's talking about a bride on one side. I and my bride are one, exactly as Mary the Magdalene, whom I have chosen to myself as an example or a teacher, are one with me. When he, he says he, bride in that quote, is he referring to Mary Magdalene or is what is no, he? No, no. He, what is he saying? No. The bride in Aramaic is kalta, and kalta can also be any feminine, so to speak, power. So, so, what so the feminine principle he's one with. I and my feminine principle is one. And in Mary Magdalene, I found an earthly woman or a mirror of that principle within me. Therefore, I have chosen her to be an example to me or my teacher or my equal, and vice versa. She have chosen him because in him he have, she have found the masculine principle within her. So I think that's the most profound and beautiful saying that tells all about their relationship. And when we talk about making the male and the female into a single being, so the male is not male, the female is not female, and so on and so forth, it doesn't mean, you tell me if it does, but I, I don't get the impression that it means that everyone is going to be sort of androgynous and that men are, are, you won't be able to see any distinction in the degree of masculinity and femininity between men and women, but somehow there will be a more natural balance, perhaps, 
it's all about balance. Yeah. It's all about that we have been living in a world, in a society for too many years now that is being led by old patriarchal kind of power and the days are over. And you see there's a lot of women who have taken the masculinity upon them even in a way that they're all much too masculine. But now we have been through all the, the women's slip and all these things. Now the time has come for us to understand what is masculinity all about? What is femininity all about? And try to find the qualities within both of them and put them together. So the male are not just male, it's also female. In the end, you know, when we have to leave this, you should remember when we came in here, before we, we were manifested, the minute we are born, we are born as a man or a woman. But before that, we had both in us. We were both. So it's only when we manifest on a physical level that we are becoming one or the other. So when we leave and we come over on the other side, at one point when we are mature enough, we will see the same thing that we are becoming. So he's already talking about that, Yeshua. And that is what we are kind of aspiring to by working with it here and finding out that when you have a, a mate that is female, if you are male and you have a female, you have the chance to... And listen, he's not talking about man or woman. He's talking about male and female. So two men in, can also, if one of them are female, and two women, you know, if one of them are male or female, you know. So it's more a point, a point to understand this really, what he's talking about, what they are talking about. So when you mention two men or two women, you're referring to, you know, homosexual relationships, but in which one might be more masculine or feminine than the other yeah. or something. Yeah. And yeah. then there's transgender. And I mean, these days, the whole gender thing and the, the different people's yeah. different orientations to that is... Uh, Rick, I think really that I have some um, homosexual friends. And I, you know, I've known them for many years. And I can see that I think that they are embodying something new, you know, and the, the new gender thing that is coming in between a lot of young church, you know, it is all pointing in that direction. Something is drawing us into something and we have to see it, you know, and we have to recognize something. We don't know yet what it is, but I'm positive that this has something to do with uh, the other day in Copenhagen, I went into a shop. I had to, to buy a, a toothbrush or something and it was a male who dressed up as a female with nail polishing and, you know, and eye mascara and all these things. And I thought, how wonderful. It was the most gentle, tender being, you know, that was just flying, you know, to the... <laughs> it was just amazing. I never thought about, is it boy or girl? or It was a profound being, you know, in its own right. Very nice. Here's a question, which I don't know if you're going to want to try to answer this or not. I mentioned earlier this teacher named Sargadatta Maharaj, who's very highly respected. And he's the one I mentioned that smokes cigarettes, but that's not relevant. But he once said this, Absolute is without quality and beyond consciousness. 
So he was saying that there's a level of life which is so fundamental that it is beyond that is beyond all qualities and even beyond consciousness. Mm-hmm. And the questioner wants to know if you can shed some light on this statement. I think the most important thing right now for humans is to recognize why we are here. Even a lot of spiritual people, they seem to, they don't want to be here really. So they they use spirituality in, in order to get away, so to speak. Spiritual but, bypassing is the phrase yeah, that's often used. Say, yeah, you could say that. But I think when we really come to know that we right now are manifested here as physical beings, there is a reason for that, you know. With all the dramas that we create, that we have to, first of all, we have to find out what kind of drama do we find ourselves in the midst of. Maybe now start to just to elevate ourselves beyond that, to go above that drama and start to see how is the world looking from there and then take the next step. And in order to understand, but or if I'm afraid that we won't understand what this guy you just recited was is talking about. But to me, there's no doubt that there is a oneness level where everything becomes one like the it doesn't matter if you are male or female, and you are just welcomed and you are accepted exactly as you are. Because when you are on that level, all the dramas, things that we are dealing with here, just falls away, and we start to see clearly. The veil is drawn aside, and we see things as they are for what they are, and start to see how many things we are actually have to express our gratitude towards because this is another thing that we are very good at complaining you know there are so many things to complain about but instead of complaining we should do something about it and then show our gratitude for our ability to do something about it yeah i jotted down from your book a phrase that went like this um world of answers which begins where human intellect and three-dimensional reality cease to exist Exactly. Perhaps that's the same thing he was alluding to. The problem in in our world today is that everybody is looking after answers in the world of questions. And you would only find temporary answers with temporary value. We really need to now dare to start working in any tradition, spiritual tradition, that will take us to the next level and just open up and see what it's all about. Yeah, and here's another quote from your book that relates to what you just said this time, which is perhaps a good thing for us to conclude on. He said, humans have only one life, but it is eternal. The soul is on a journey toward ever higher states of consciousness, and only humans themselves can determine the speed with which those states can be attained. Exactly. As long as we allow ourselves to be caught up in the dramas of everyday life, we're really not going anywhere. So at one point, we will end up in a sick bed or anything. We will have a wake-up call, and maybe the corona thing is such a call. But we will get the call, and we need to respond to it and then make another choice and go on. The good news is that everything that we're looking for, everything that we need and want, we already have. We just have to wake up and understand it. Just allow it to be manifested in our life. 
It seems like the corona thing is some sort of wake-up call. And now what's happening in the U.S. the last few days is rioting all over the country mm. yeah, so, yeah. because this black man was killed in a horrible way by a policeman. But the whole country's going crazy right now. I just mm-hmm. wonder if this is... I don't know. This has happened from time to time in the, you know, in the '60s. There was that sort of thing going on in a big way. Do you have any kind of sense from, however, you would have gotten the sense of where the world is headed? In all of your reading, is a sort of a heavenly world prophesized, and do you feel like we're going through a period of turbulence as a transition into a, a more heavenly type of society? Yeah, we have always done that. The problem now is that we are becoming technocrats. We have put all our money on technical development and totally forgotten all about our own abilities, our inabilities. And that's where we come to now that we have to make the the right choice now. People are talking about artificial intelligence and cars that can drive by themselves, you know, all kind of, I would call, um, really boring stuff. (laughs) When you think about what we are, are capable of, it's primitive stuff. I remember the film Avatar, and I thought it was a beautiful film until those machines came in where people were sitting in some machines. I mean, I well, those are the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, but back to the old story. The good guys we, just rode on, a, on an animal yeah, yeah. and had but, but we, powers we have to, and stuff. We have to choose now what we want to be, you know, and what we want to do with it. And if we if we are going down that road with the same old story with uh, people who wants to make money and greed and stuff on this and that and uh, doesn't give a shit about how the world turns out, we need to stand up. And I think that the black people, what they're doing is something is needed to, to because or else it, the same old story will just continue itself. Somebody has to do something. And if you ask some person very, very kindly, please, can you not, can you stop doing this? And nothing happens. It is our own fault when things like that happen. We didn't listen. We didn't see it coming, you know. We just thought, ah, oh, I have enough on my own plate. I will turn my back to this. It has nothing to do with me. And, you know, when you go back to Jeshua in the New Testament, he was a bodhisattva of the finest and highest rank. He was here to take care. And even if it took him to go into the temple and just turn over all the the money changes tables and say, enough is enough. Get out of my father's house. We must do the same in to be activists spiritual warriors, so to speak. It doesn't mean we have to kill or burn down something, but the result of what all the choices that have been made in America is showing itself now. This is the result. If you don't listen and do something about it, of course people get desperate. Yeah, yeah? yeah. And it will, if somebody is coming next year and said, we have to, to vaccinate you all with this stuff, we know it's not good, but we have to do it, you know, because... Uh, or else you you will just spread this disease. And at the same time, we are being manipulated with in, in many different... We have to stand up and say, no, please. Or else nobody would come and do it for us. Yeah, you know, if Jesus went into the temple and said to the money changers, you know, you guys probably really shouldn't be here. Would you mind, like, taking your tables and going... They would have ignored him totally. <laughs> they had to get a little bit more strict... Yeah, go school, <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Martin Luther King uh, said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Yeah. When we are working with spirituality, we, of course, also work on different levels. We work on true prayer and visualization and stuff like that. This is one part of work. Every day, the seer, in his office, he started 7 o'clock to 8, and he was concentrating on different parts of the world that needed some attention. And he, he told me, this is going on all over the world. There are people sitting there you know, in America and there and there doing exactly the same stuff. And I asked him, are you connected? No, not in. We don't talk on the telephone or something. I just know they are there and they know I'm here and there's somebody in Russia doing this. All for the benefit of humankind. And actually on uh, Mount Athos, have you known about Mount Athos? In Greece, yeah. Where 5,000 monks at this time are sitting every day and and pray to the Virgin Mary for peace in the world. There was a journalist who came and confronted one of the bishops and said, it doesn't seem to work really because there's war. And the, the bishop said, oh, a young man, how do you think things would look if we didn't do it? Yeah, good point. So this is no excuse for us not to do it. This is part of the work of being. But when that's done, you go up and you go out in your local community and see, is there anything here that doesn't work? I need to go down there and say, hello, we are some people here who don't want this anymore. Those who want to be vaccinated, fine. But we are some people here who don't want it. And we have some democracy here, some kind of democracy, and we just want to to respect that. Or whatever the problem might be, we cannot go out and dictate that other people should follow our ways, but we should respect that there are differences and that you can you have your free will, you cannot be manipulated in any way. Of course, you cannot go and do bad stuff, take other people's stuff. Stick to the law of light within you. And if people around you could do the same, there would be no problem in yeah. this world. One thought that I always have, and perhaps you could comment on this as a way of concluding, is that, like you said, I've heard you say, life is like five minutes. It's just such a flash in the pan in mm-hmm. terms of the whole time span of our, the life of our soul and the life of the universe and so on. And so there's that saying, make hay while the sun shines. It's a precious opportunity, and it's in our best interest to make the best use of it we possibly can in terms of taking whatever evolutionary opportunities there are, taking full advantage of them, you know, making as much progress as, as we can make in this short lifetime. Yeah. Then, of course, we must always define what is progress, what is real progress, yeah. whether I, you know. Because as I said before, it seems that we have invested much too much on technology. Well, I mean spiritual progress, you know, coming closer to God, yeah, that, yeah, that kind yeah, of progress. Exactly. Exactly. We must, so to speak, manifest the gifts that we have been given and get them going, you know. So if that happens, we will, we will realize that it's nice to have a fridge, it's nice to have a television, but these things are not God, you know. Sure. And if you had had a self-driving car, you might not have had that car accident. So technologies can be good, but on the other Mm. hand, they're not our savior. They're not the ultimate Mm. source of solutions or fulfillment for human beings. Okay, Lars, well, thank you very much. What kind of things do you do, aside from the technique that you just taught us, how can people connect with you or plug in? I know you have your books. 
Do you do any kind of webinars or anything, seminars? Yeah, I have also done some work in America and visited it a few times. But um, yeah, I do webinars in between, yeah. yeah. I've just done a few. Probably can't and, do them these days, but once you can get back to doing them. Well. Yeah, but I'll do webinars as I have done a few of and I will do some. And you just have to go to my website or my Facebook site, and uh, it's all announced there what I'm doing and where I'm doing it. Good. I'll link to those from your page on BatGap. All righty. Well, thank you very much. It's been nice getting to know you over the past week and having this conversation with you. Thank you very much, Ricky. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Been, I appreciate it. Good. All right. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching. As you know, this is an ongoing series, so if you would like to be notified when new interviews are posted, um, you can subscribe on YouTube. And also, once you hit the subscribe button, this little bell icon shows up. If you hit the bell in addition to the subscribe button, then it really notifies you every time something is posting. Otherwise, it just notifies you sometimes. And also on, on the BatGap website, you can subscribe to an email notification, and audio podcast, and a bunch of other things are there. So check it out. So thank you. And thank you again, Lars. Thank you very much. Wonderful meeting you. Yeah. And goodbye, all of you out there. Remember, you are already enlightened. That's, uh, that's really something to remember. Thank you for listening. Thank you.